Hi everyone, it's Joakim Akren, your host of the Elite Game Developers Podcast, a podcast about the entrepreneurs and investors who are building the games companies of the future. Today I'm talking with Javier Barnes, product manager at Tilting Point. Javier has an extensive background in gaming, having worked at Gameloft, Social Point and others. With Javier, we decided to make this episode uh, more of a discussion episode around the topics of game design in 2021. And it's a big interest of both of us. So I hope you're going to like this as well. We talk about playtesting, player motivations, user-oriented design, uh, the model of these small independent teams and more. The discussion actually took over two hours, so we decided to make this a two-part episode where the first episode goes live now and the next one will go live in a few days. So if you're listening to this a lot later, you can listen to both of them already on your favorite podcasting app. But before we go to the episode, here's a few words from our sponsors. All the developers out there that are looking for an easy game server auto-scaling solution should definitely check out GameEye. Choosing GameEye means choosing your players as GameEye is a platform independent solution. Game sessions are spread out over multiple providers to ensure redundancy and to achieve the best possible coverage in every region of the world. GameEye is your one-stop shop for all your server orchestration needs. They have many integrations already in place ready to go. You also can connect to your favorite matchmaker, anti-cheat solution or network optimization tool to their orchestrator and start running game sessions. They provide the APIs for this. Take advantage of automated capacity management and always have resources to run game sessions. Scale when you need it in locations close to your players. Check out GameEye.com, that's GameYE.com, to see what they're up to and to connect with them. Hey game developer, are you looking for great new authentic video creatives? Try something totally new with influencer-generated content, IGC, by Opera Event. Influencers and actors will make specific creative content for your games. An opera event will deliver you high-quality video ads that highlight the best parts of your game. Get a free video with a purchase of four or more videos. Remember to say that Elite Game Developers sent you to claim your free video. Go to getigc.com to see some examples and get more information. That's getigc.com. All right, Javier, we're live. Welcome to the show. Nice to be here. Um, thank you very much for uh, calling me over. <laughs> yeah, this is going to be a good one because we're going to be talking about a lot of like game creation stuff, game design, uh, very close to me, my heart. I've always been kind of like a product person, uh, very much like focused on that side of the business. So 
a lot of lot of stuff to cover. Can you start, Javier, on on telling the listeners about your background, and what you in the gaming? Yeah. Um, so you said you're you're someone that is very focused on on product, and um, then grew an interest on design. I'm kind of the other way around. <laughs> yeah, man. I, so I my... did everything <laughs> myself always. So. So most of my experience, I started as a, as a game designer and most of my experience I've been for uh, 10 years in, a, in the industry has been as a game economy designer and um, a game kind of a monetization designer. So yeah. I was game economy designer in games uh, at Gameloft in games such as um, Asphalt 8, Despicable Minion, uh, Despicable Me, Minion Rush, and then some other games of the Asphalt franchise, among several other titles and like work with IPs and stuff like that. And um, what happened was um, eventually I took a position as, as game economy director in, in Game of Montreal, and that kind of allowed me to you know, manage the game economy and the monetization of multiple, multiple games. And what happened was at some point, I wanted to be more focused on design uh, so I took a position as a uh, lead game designer in, in Social Point. That's what I've been doing for the last uh, three years. Uh, I was at lead, as um, lead game designer in, in Master Legends, which is a, a superb title, um, a collect, super, super interesting collection and, and um, casual RPG title. And, um, but my main, so, as you can see, I've been kind of toying with this thing about being half product and monetization oriented and free and specialist on free to play um, economies and being a game designer. And uh, just recently, like about a week ago, less than a week, in fact, I joined uh, Tilting Point as senior product manager. So now I've taken kind of the other way, the, the other um, the other side, and now I'm completely on on product. Um, but like my own thoughts is that, you know, that this, this, at least in free to play, this, um, separation between uh, business and design and product and, and designers, it's not as, it's not as strong as in maybe, I don't know, PC and console or, or premium, premium, uh, premium games. I, I do think that a good game designer in mobile has to be very product oriented and a, and anyone working in games and anyone doing the strategy for product in, in games needs to have this kind of designer hat uh, because otherwise like it's impossible to to understand the what, what's going on with your product right mm, that's good that's a good analogy there for sure hey should we get going into the topics There's so much to cover Let's go. today <laughs> <laughs> so since we're doing an episode on how games are made i think like first of all i wanted to talk about playtesting. So playtesting is is good for a few things like players understanding the game. So what I've observed in working in big studios is that when you discover something through like let's say playtest cloud, uh, it can be tough to say that you know like when you start from scratch with a whole feature versus like having a full game that you're testing, you end up like fixing and policing the user interface usually with those those kind of findings that you get from Playtest Cloud. But it doesn't always tell you direct about the bigger problems in a game. Like it's very, it's not meant for that. Like what are your thoughts there? Um, well, I should start by saying that for me, at least uh, playtesting, I think, I think it's key. I think it's a, a key tool to obtain 
to obtain feedback, especially in topics related to gameplay. Um, the other tool being like maybe analytics data and so on. But I think that only using uh, data metrics without actually playtesting and actually getting to talk with the players and getting to see how the players play, it's, it's very, very difficult to understand the, the data. Specifically in the topic of Playtest Cloud, um, I think I think it's a super super good um, it's a super good tool. I, I use it. I, I have used it uh, extensively, and probably to the developers that are listening to this, every single dollar that you spend on Playtest Cloud is probably worth the investment. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, as you said, you can you cannot expect miracles from it. Um, in particular, I would say that the the strongest things of with Playtest Cloud on top of uh, the fact that they have, a, you can profile the players very well and you can target like this specific audience with this. I only want players that like this game and so on. And and the fact that it's super, super fast, like I'm mind blown on how fast you can get results with Playtest Cloud. I was expecting, the first time I used it, I was expecting like maybe have to wait for like what, a week or two weeks. And I was amazed because in 48 hours, uh, in fact, less than that, I already had answers from from the playtest and and stuff, so it's super super fast. Uh, but on top, I mean, other than that, I think that the the main benefit is being able to see what's the impression of somebody that doesn't have any experience with the game. So it's super super good to solve stuff related to early onboarding. So are there steps on the tutorial that people does not understand? Um, stuff related to like you said. UX and UI understandability and interaction, like um, is this button, do, do players understand that this button allows them to access this this entire area of the game or uh, when they, I don't know, are players understanding what do they have to do in order to grade the characters, how the grade system works and so on. So I think that's great for that, but I don't think it's good to get like feedback from a kind of a long-term experience. Um, and like you said, it, it, it I don't think it's the appropriate method to get like the deeper thing. Like, okay, on a very abstract level, uh, the approach to gameplay that this game takes, for example, uh, is is the right one? Should we put more micromanagement? Should we put less micromanagement? Like deeper topics like that, it's difficult to to get. In my opinion, at least, it's difficult to get good feedback um, on those topics through. Playtest Cloud, just because for that you need you need players that are really really invested into your specific game. And in Playtest Cloud, when it, they do allow you to do long term tests and so on, but you're gonna have like kind of two types of different feedback, which is players that have been playing the, your game for a long time because they are incentivized to do it. So actually, their feedback. It's not exactly the same thing as somebody that would take it and would be more an organic experience. Even, uh, although you maybe they have downloaded the game through paid marketing, but the, the experience will be organic, right? Yeah. Um, and on the other hand, you can have players that are experts from another game, but that also is tricky because maybe those players they see as problematic um, stuff that is actually your main innovation points just because they are comparing with a game that they are extremely used and they, they love. Um, so I'm not necessarily saying that doing this kind of long-term tests on Playtest Cloud is a bad idea because it's not. Probably it will teach you something. I'm just saying that probably uh, you have to 
put more you have to take it with more distance compared to the kind of early feedback and usability related feedback that you get from playtest code which probably it's way more authentic um my advice to that is if you want um play to, i mean if you want um feedback on those core abstract reasonings try to create a playtest group by yourself and try to keep inviting the same guys to the playtest over and over and, uh, and have like different groups and so on sure but Keep a group that you that they they keep on playing the game and they keep on um, checking it over and over. And I think that's a good way to to get like a more let's say realistic or maybe helpful uh, feedback. And also like yeah, like you said, you mentioned earlier, like it's difficult also to to get uh, uh, to extract like insights from that feedback. I think that um, one thing that we have to, any developer that uses playtest has to have clear is the fact that um, the playtest is not going to give you the, the answers. The playtest is going to give you some clues and then it's up to you to be the detective and, and create and understand what those answers uh, came. Um, so I, I, I think in general, there are several misconceptions that I have seen over my career when it comes to playtest is that usually um, the developers either either try to take every single feedback as the ultimate truth, especially if they're like junior. They any feedback that comes from a playtest is like the ultimate truth. And sometimes, again, like I said, it's more about understanding why players are saying what they're saying, and not necessarily what exactly they're they are saying. Um, and and the second is taking uh, understanding the playtest as a validation of assumptions, and which I mean you can use the playtest to validate some assumptions. Like, I think this is going to be fun. And then players play it and they don't understand it or they don't find it fun. Sure, it has validated. But for me, this is just a part of the playtest and may not even be necessarily the most valuable part. The most valuable part of a playtest is to understand who is your audience, what they do enjoy. Uh, the technique that I use um, when I play, I mean, when I work uh, very playtest oriented is I try to understand what are the moments that in the during a playtest that generate emotional reactions. Um, so I like it, it is something that is methodologically incorrect, but I like to do it, which is be close or at least be be able to watch the people that are playing. Not not only what they are doing in the game, not only the the video of, of uh, the video capture or the streaming of, of the of the game screen. But also their faces. Also, I want to see which moments of the game they 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 feel angry. They they their faces turn angry, and which moments of the game uh, make them um, you know laugh and 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 smile and stuff like that. And I use that to understand which moments of the game are generating those emotional reactions, and then pivot the design around those emotional reactions. For example. Um, a while ago, I was working in a in an esports game, and um, we were we had a lot of questions on how to do the pass system and what would be the uh, imagine it was a, a game with a ball, like kind of soccer, fantasy soccer, um, and we had a lot of questions on okay, how how the pass system should go, how can that be useful, and what we noticed was because up until that point, until the point that we started run play testings on that regard, 
our past system were heavily automatized. We were trying to make it as easy as possible. But then during the playtest, we realized that the moment where players were feeling the best, the moments that were generating um, emotional reactions and was making them feel engaged with the game was the moment where they uh, either did the pass and, and which was challenging and they, they were able to achieve it, or the moments where they pass to another to another player and the other player messes up and he misses the the ball that created a lot of frustration and that created a lot of uh, back and forth interaction between the players and and um, created a, a whole new set of dynamics um, which made the game much richer um, as developers especially mobile where everything is extremely systems oriented i think we tend to think as players like like machines like uh, economic yeah. agents that act, act rationally and uh <laughs> one of the things I, mean, I mean i've that, done that mistake for a long time because my background is in economics uh, and um and i've been monetization designer and so on like thinking the player as a kind of robot and one thing that um lately and, th and thinking more and more is that we can't we cannot forget the human factor in that actually the human factor is the most important thing um it's the game it should be uh, or the objective of the game is not making the players go through a loop the mm. objective of the game is making the player stay in an emotional state where they are mm. having fun or or fluctuate between several emotion states that Overall, that the whole experience makes fun. Um, if I mean, we have seen a lot of examples that are of games that um, are systematically perfect. Like the loop makes a lot of sense. So yeah, the player does this and then does this. So then he needs this thing and then he needs these things. Here he monetizes and this is the reason why he comes tomorrow. And and the player doesn't do any of that just because it's not enjoying being a part of the loop. That that loop. May, make sense on a rational level, but it doesn't make sense on an emotional level. It's not making it's not making the game fun. And um, you know, the service that we're providing, the product that we're creating, is not is not uh, a loop that players want to go. That's just part of the drill. The important thing is that going through that loop um, generates a sensation of the player. What we're selling is the sensation. Um, so, like I said, I think that the the playtest is really really important as a tool to understand what makes your players click and then mm. iterate your design based on the that knowledge that you have obtained through the playtest. But again, for me, it's more a tool, not for verification of how the game is, it's more a tool mm. for uh, understanding the, the player. And on that regard, um, I know I'm talking a lot. <laughs> um, yeah, go for it, man, it's, we have time. <laughs> um, and in that regard, uh, one example that I saw was um, uh, in a G there's a GDC talk uh, from um, Supercell about about Brawl Stars and one they they show some footage of their uh, playtest or early playtests of the game. One thing that I found very very interesting is that they were not only recording the screens of the game, they were also recording. They they have put some camera like kind of inverted, and they were recording the the faces of the the faces of the players. And that for me was very very interesting because. Actually, it was easier to understand the good points or easier to understand what worked in the game and what didn't uh, by looking at their faces, at the faces of the people that was playing, rather than by looking at the um, at the game screens. Uh, so, yeah, 
for me, the playtest, it's a lot about understanding uh, human emotions and mm. uh, doing a playtest and not being able to see the, the faces of who is playing. For me, it's very, very difficult. Makes it very difficult to um, understand the feedback. Yeah. I, I, what I've thought about often is like playtesting with different kind of people is always really good. So you have the playtest cloud testers who are sort of like definitely like not not somebody who, who's close to the company or anything, but they're still incentivized to play because they're getting paid to do that. But then you can have your co-workers who sort of like are from the industry who could be more critical about certain experiences that they're having and the ways that they interact with the game. And then friends and family is different. Uh, investors of the company like all have different motivation when they're coming in and trying the game so it's it's in a sense like you want to have a mix of different uh, reasons that they're playing the game at that moment um, and the optimal of course is the one like you said that somebody would pick it up from maybe a, a advertisement or something and play it sort of voluntarily Those yeah i mean what you mentioned is a is a actually a very complex topic the the fact that the feedback that you get is contaminated mm. um and that, I mean, that is true. To be honest, I think that the Playtest Cloud, especially, again, when it comes to early feedback, I think it's really very, very reliable because even if people is, is paid, what they are feedbacking is not necessarily related to their engagement. It's more related to if they are understanding the game or not. Um, so contamination there, I don't think it's important or it's it's as, as big as as when trying to evaluate fun uh but of course like everybody you can have access to they're gonna be contaminated in some way or another like because they're playing again <laughs> again they're playing because you're you're asking them to to play right yeah. um and yeah if it's your family they will probably say that this is something that is better than what really is and so on um but then in that regard, I think that one possible decision would be like, okay, I'm gonna try to have like the cleanest um, players ever, and uh, so my my playtesters are extremely selected. They don't know what they're, they don't know who I am. They never interact with me, and so on. And I don't think that's a good trade-off because making th that that makes making the playtest so difficult that you're not gonna be able to run a lot of playtests. So I think it's a trade-off. You're 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 making running a playtest like really, really, really hard. Uh, at least my approach is I try to do like the playtest as dirty as possible, but I try to do a lot of them. And uh, same as cheese, cheese is like rotten milk, but it's so rotten that the the, the bacteria dies. Um, I try to do the same thing, like do so many playtests with so many different people and so on, so that their biases get canceled. And I also, mm -hmm. uh, since I know that people like even if you don't know the developers, people is more incentivated to give give uh, polite feedback, uh, especially if you're an underdog. Um, they're they're more incentivated to to give you pol polished and like feedback, and they're not gonna bash you unless you are like really important, like a massive company and so on. Um, what I do is I try to put more focus on on uh, the understanding the feedback that tells me that something's not wrong, because. You know, probably the, the feedback that tells you, yeah, this is awesome, the game is great, so on. This is probably the feedback that is less useful. I mean, it is useful to understand, okay, what do players praise about the game and so on? But it's worth questioning, okay, sure, but out of these 100 people, these five guys that, that 
said something that something wasn't good with this specific thing is is it why why is it because they are not the target is it just because they don't like the game and that's it they, they're never gonna play the game whatever or are are these folk telling me something that are they seeing something or are they being sincere in something that everybody else is not telling me about mm-hmm. um so again i, I try to play this as 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 much as i can and uh, another solution for another solution side solution for that is try to soft la- again try to soft launch or alpha launch as soon as possible you can recruit players through marketing and play test with those players that you have recruited through um through marketing and that's that's super cool it's something that i have done in the past like doing uh, advertising for games that do, didn't didn't exist and the end step of that marketing process was collecting their emails and then we contact them through email we we um got them in in our discord and we were sharing builds like development builds with them so we kind of recreated our own uh, play testers from players that actually would have downloaded the game that's a good idea let's let's move on to the topic of uh player motivation we wanted to cover so what do you think are the motivation to play a game, like voluntarily picking up a game and continuing to play the game for months. So my, my personal feeling there is that like, I think that when you, you understand what motivates players, you can start mixing different kinds of gameplay together, uh, creating like a new genre. Like I think like Empires and Puzzles did it really nicely where they were mixing uh, this uh, RPG, puzzle RPG from Puzzle Quest with the 4X uh, sort of meta. And that that whole like stuff from Game of War came over, and and yeah, others have done great jobs as well there. But sort of like uh, I think like there were other games who were also trying to kind of like take over what mo- like puzzle RPGs were doing. Like there was Legendary Game of Heroes, uh, which didn't grow as big, but then Empires and Puzzles really delivered on that kind of. What are your thoughts on that that area of player mode? Well, uh, this is. Two topics, <laughs> if, I, if I'm getting it getting it right. Um, one is getting to know the players, which is an entire beast on its own. And the second is like kind of mixing genres and, and so on. And I think that, like, as you said, uh, you can mix genres if it makes sense for the players, for the, tar- for the target audience. Honestly, I'm a bit, as a default stance, I'm a bit uh, wary about combining different ty- uh, genres. And I kind of put my skeptic hat whenever somebody talks me about, I'm going to take this genre and mix it with another genre and create something that makes sense. Just because a lot of the, most of those combinations do not make sense. Like if you want a long-term retention of a 4X uh, and the engagement, the early engagement of an infinite runner, and you try to create an infinite runner that where you race by running, you race troops, and then you wage war against other players and conquer territories and so on. That's a bit insane. I don't know. Uh, maybe in three months' time, there's an <laughs> Infinite Runner 4X released, and they shut me down. But um, I, I would say <laughs> that probably there's no one that th- this profile does not exist, because probably the players of uh, Infinite Runners, they're like very casual audience, and they're going to be not very engaged, or they, they're looking for a more casual experience compared to a 4X, and probably for 4X players, the, what, what they want is to think and uh, you know plan this big strategies and how to implement them and so on, the kind of having to put like quick inputs and have reflexes, super fast 
reflexes on an infinite runner, that's not appealing for them. Uh, mm -hmm. So probably that that crowd of the infinite runner for X doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, if there's any, like, yeah. yeah, if there's yeah, anyone it's... listening to this that is doing an infinite runner for X and has like super gut KPIs, do not cancel the game <laughs> just because <laughs> what I said. I'm, I just think yeah. that, that that target doesn't exist, right? Yeah, at least there's the approach of like, if you're doing mixing like second to second gameplay with some kind of uh, a different, like never seen before mix of uh, a meta game. Like, you know, you you have two hats, you're drawing a a, a, a a sort of paper which says like infinite runner and then the other hat you draw 4X. Like uh, at least you should build something and test it. Otherwise it's it's not gonna you know, taste yeah. it in your mouth later. <laughs> For me, it's the same thing as if you're cooking. It, the best dish in the world is the one that has the ingredients on its proper, uh, on the right, on the right proportion, not yeah. the dish that has all the ingredients. And sometimes, like what, a mistake that it's easy to make because I don't know. You want to even in live games, you want to increase one KPI. So I'm gonna start adding features that do not fit with the game and they're gonna alienate the the audience. It's the same as if I have uh, a dish of spaghetti and I start to put chocolate just because I know that cakes are very popular. Yes. Uh, the, the ultimate, ultimately, that dish is going to be a disaster, right? So yes. I feel that when it comes to mixes, the best mixes are those that uh, that do have a target. That where those new features or or that or that that combination of of different gameplay styles or different genres make sense and feels organic for the players. Um, so, it, it, for example, in uh, RPG Match 3, it kind of feels, it makes sense to kind of uh, um, use the puzzle, uh, collect resources through a, through the puzzle in order to um, use those resources somewhere else. Um, or another example of, from a game that I love, which is uh, War Dragons, is they integrate, War Dragons, they integrated uh, kind of an entire new 4X layer. Um, it was a co collection breathing game with with a kind of action-oriented minigame. And then they, they kind of turned it into a 4X. Um, mm -hmm. But it made a lot of sense. It made a lot of sense to take a, a very complex RPG and then add this kind of territorious thing. Like from the player audience and the kind of people that plays that game with me, I could see that totally working. Um, so like I said, I think that the mixing of genres requires you to, to know very well who's your audience or, or who's the audience that is going to enjoy that combination. And sometimes those combinations fail just because there's no one there. Like you jump to the, you jump to the swimming pool and there's no word. Yeah, that's, I, I totally agree with that. Hey, you wanted to talk about this thing you called user oriented design. So I, I think I've, I've been calling it audience first design, but it's probably the same way, thing we're talking about, like having the audience front and center. And, and to, to kind of like start off this discussion, I wanted to ask you if you have, you have ever like started off by sur doing surveys to players and what have you found most helpful there for like having the audience really early on, like front and center. And, and certainly like I've been more interested in figuring out why an audience would pick a certain game over the competition, uh, it, it's usually quite simple, but like it, you can have a lot of like these hints of of why players would prefer to play a certain type of game. But like, what are your thoughts on on surveys to to get to know the player? Um, 
Well, I think that surveys are, are awesome and uh, you should, I mean, they are a great tool to get to know your your audience and I would recommend do it. If, if you haven't, do it. And even if you, if you don't have an audience yet or you don't have a live game, um, run surveys on the audience of other games. So something that, for example, I've done is um, I'm writing right now an article about how to chess. So what I did is I did a, a run a survey to and posted it on the different Reddit communities of like all the auto chesses out there and, and so on. And that gave me a, a much better understanding of um, who's playing those games and and uh, the kind of psychological profile that 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 plays those games and that inhabit those those um, communities. So surveys are very, very good. Um, I think nevertheless, they're just like the tip of the iceberg when it comes to getting to know your players. And uh, a lot of developers, they don't necessarily know what are the limitations of surveys. And surveys also are misguiding. Um, again, I'm saying this because they need to be complemented with other activities, not because um, I'm advising people not to run surveys. Uh, but I, I, on my experience, there are several, there were several, the surveys general uh, um, kind of blurry the information in different ways. Um, one is the fact that they, the surveys give uh, more voice to the opinion that is more widely shared and not mm -hmm. necessarily the one that is more true. So if a lot of players are telling you that, I don't know, this character is not, is not um, or the ability is not good enough, and a lot of players think that the ability of that specific character is not good enough because, I don't know, it's hard to use, you can be sure that they think that uh, the ability is hard to use and that, there are, that, that they, maybe they think that the character is not good. But that doesn't mean that the character is, is, is not necessarily good. Maybe uh, in expert players, there are very few in, in terms of quantity, but they are really aware of, um, they're really aware of the potential of that specific character ability. Um, but even expert players can be conf confused. Like for example, I am very involved in the Magic the Gathering and the kind of thing that every single player in Magic the Gathering, maybe except for the more, more casual ones, but like every expert players is gonna complain about the randomness of mana. They are all gonna tell you, oh, um, that, that, that's not good because uh, I can be winning, I can be like super good player and then I have bad luck. I don't, I don't draw any mana and, and I lose my, my um, I lose the match. And um, a lot of them, like a lot of players complain about the randomness of, of mana. But then you think if, if, if uh, we take a step back and we analyze, that, that's actually something that makes, it extre that makes uh, magic extremely unique and that makes it really, really fun. Uh, um, compared to a lot of their competitors, like for example, Hearthstone, which have eliminated uh, the randomness of mana. And mm -hmm. that that makes the outcome of Hearthstone matches much more predictable. And um, again, like I said, with this thing about the um, emotional reactions, in Magic the Gathering, the best sensation ever is when you needed a mana and you didn't have it and then you draw it and the worst <laughs> sensation is when you needed that mana just to overturn the tables and like get get dominance on the match and that mana just doesn't appear yep. and and that's really 
th that creates a lot of emotional engagement. It provides a new depth of, of complexity to the game because now you have to build your decks. I mean, building decks in Magic the Gathering is way, way more complex because you don't know when you're going to have enough mana to cast certain certain um, certain cards and you have to take in a, uh, you have to sacrifice slots in your deck in order to put cards that will make possible that you search for a specific mana because you need it later uh, so it it makes a it adds a degree of uncertainty uh, which actually makes magic the gathering more similar to poker because uh, in in um, hearthstone again because you know that at the 10th turn, you're going to have 10, 10 mana. You know that by the 10th turn, the guy is going to bring something. He's going to drop a card that is very powerful because he has had time to collect that card and, and so on. But a magic, you can be on turn 10 and maybe you don't know what the other guy, what the other guy has. Maybe he can obliterate you or maybe he has nothing. And you have to play with that uncertainty that makes the game, at least for me, in my opinion, much more fun and i think that's one of the key reasons why magic the gathering has been able to be successful for so much time while other ccgs even if they were more popular at specific points of time they have not been able to sustain their popularity for a for a long time so again the surveys they'll give you what players think but not necessarily what is more true not, not necessarily the true and the second is that they generate kind of an amalgamation of, of personalities. Um, this is something that I've always suspected, but but I I, I just got like very recently a, a very clear example of that was that uh, sometimes two players can uh, tell you the same thing, but actually for completely different reasons. Um, for example, like I, I like I said, I did a um, pretty big. We had like. Uh, 500 answers on um, on a poll that we did about auto chess, and a lot of the players were talking about uh, were praising auto chess, like or auto battlers in general, by the fact that um, they they didn't require you a high actions per minute ratio. So even I mean they they liked the fact that they they it, it was not kind of an intensive micromanagement game. Uh, but actually, when we started to talk with them more in depth and interview some specific members of of the of the community and so on, we realized that um, there were actually several groups there. Like there were people that um, actually enjoyed a lot high dexterity and high IPM uh, games, but they were older in terms of age and they could not keep up with the speed of League of Legends. So. They liked out the chess because that allowed them to play those games that because of their physical bodies, they could not be able to enjoy anymore because they they were they couldn't keep up with the speed that League of Legends required you or other MOVAs. Um, and then we had, for example, other other players that were praising the same exact thing, but just because they had a real life, they were like um, people of, of uh, my age, like 30 something, and they were playing the game while they were doing engaging with other activities. So maybe they, they were playing uh, out of chess or teamfight tactics while they were watching TV. So what they liked is that they could be watching TV with their family and their kids and something, but also be playing the game, but because it allowed them to, they only needed to focus on this specific game every certain periods of time. So once every uh, every minute or once every two minutes. While, for example, 
they couldn't play Wild Rift or League of Legends while they were watching TV or they were cooking, just because this moment where you can disconnect doesn't exist if you're playing uh, League of Legends. So they were praising the same thing for two different reasons. When, then we even had another profile, which they enjoyed kind of strategizing and, and stuff like that, which is something that you have in, in League of Legends. In League of Legends, you have to plan your overall match, not only what you're doing that in that exact moment, but in MOVAS in general, the micromanagement is so big that actually kind of eats the... Um, it's this kind of strategy layer. It's like in a, in a StarCraft 2 match or a Star, uh, in a StarCraft match. Um, yes, there is a layer where you have to choose what's going to be your strategy. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go for, for this uh, build of, of, of great and, and so on. But then like maybe 75% of the game or more is, is not about switching that strategy, which is like, but rather implementing that strategy through your dexterity and micromanagement. Um, in those, those players, what they enjoyed is was more the kind of, they were more like kind of strategy players, right? Um, so again, the same thing, but three players, the, 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 the players um, answered the same thing. If I ask the question on how much do you value the fact that the game requires you a low actions per minute, they would all vote five, but they would mean five, uh, they would mean three different things. Um, so again, like, Surveys can amalgamate that information and can hide you that information and, and you can lose the details. And I think that one of the cool things, like we said before, uh, is about understanding understanding the, the players and understanding what they think. Uh, and if you turn them into numbers, it's cool because you can work with numbers, but um, it's a good way to store information, but it's a way to store information that also eliminates the individuality of the of the each of the answers. Um, so my advice is when it comes to uh, surveys would be try to combine quantitative questions with written ones, with questions where, player, where players have to actually have to write, not only tell them like, do you like this, yes or no, do you like this from one to five, but also tell them, do you like this and why, or do you don't like this or why, you know what I mean, like get them to talk and then analyze that, that, analyze that text. Uh, it's more effort demanding, but I think it's worth because you are not removing the, um, the it, like I said, the individuality or the specifics, why they are answering a specific answer. And of course, you should combine that with the quanti quantitative type of answers. Um, I also recommend not only looking at averages or medians of, of on quantitative questions, but also on the elements like the distribution. So um, for example, um quite a while ago i was working in i mean i was working in a in a realistic um blacksmith uh, simulator um and we did a, a poll among among fans of real blacksmithing so we went to the community of forged in fire and some other and blacksmithing which there is a community in reddit about blacksmithing several yeah. in fact um and we started asking them hey you know we're we're, we're building a game uh, would you be interested in this game? Would you be interested on crafting weapons or on crafting shields or of crafting? And stuff that we noticed was um, not only oh, we focused on the fact that, for example, when it comes to asking people if they wanted to customize their blacksmithy or the place where they do the blacksmithing, um, a lot of people said, no, not neither. But then what we noticed is that a lot of players said, 
uh, voted five for that. So we kind of have this kind of uh, distribution in form of, of U. And that made us notice like, okay, sure, if we take the average, it's pretty low. Like people doesn't care about um, customizing the place where they work, but there is like a, it, it's extremely divided. So there, are, there is a, a, a group of people that it's not only that they valued it a bit more than the rest, it's just that they valued a lot. They, they really value, value that a lot. So that was helpful for us in order to take the decision like, okay, should we add customization? Yes or no? Okay, so then we realized, okay, if we add customization, it's gonna be extremely engaging for a certain part of the community, not maybe the broad community, but it's gonna be extremely, extremely, uh, effective, uh, extremely engaging for a small part of the community. And for example, that could drive us, it didn't in this case, but it could drove us to take decisions such as, okay, what if mo we monetize that? Because most players do not care about this, but the ones that care about this, they care a lot. So this is probably something that uh, we can provide at a premium for those specific players that care a lot about customization, which mm -hmm. would make it worth adding into the game, for example. Um, and also try to compare the answers of different profiles. So for example, uh, when we did Auto Chess, we started, we did kind of an, an update of the poll where we presented different psychological profiles and we made the players um, kind of assign themselves to a psychological profiles. And, and that comparing what was answering one of the, one of the profiles with another uh, was super, super useful to take conclusions. And it's, it's gonna happen the same thing. If, if you run the same the same uh, poll between your whales and between your minnows, it's gonna give you like completely different, different um, answers. And again, my final advice would be like, do not only rely on do not only rely on surveys. There are other activities on top of surveys that you can do in order to complement uh, to complement that and to get to, to know your users in a more personal level. Um, examples on that would be, for example, uh, open a Discord. Like I guess everybody's doing that today, but open a Discord and interact with them uh, directly. And I've I've heard several uh, teams and so that do not like uh, this kind of uh, close communication just because they think they are very um, time consuming, which is true. They, they, I mean, interacting with the community in a Discord takes a lot of your time. My advice with that, with, with this is, uh, instead of being available for the players the entire time, create the community, create the Discord, but then uh, schedule with the, with the, with the with the community, schedule with the players, make sure that the players know when you are going to be available for chatting. So for example, one thing that we did at the, in, a, in a Discord channel of, of a game that I was working was that we made players know that the developers were connected on Fridays from six to eight. So if they wanted to interact with the developers, if they wanted to ask questions, make suggestions, so on, they could at any point, but they weren't going, gonna get replied unless uh, I mean, they weren't going to get replied until that specific ta point in time. And what happened was that it actually made that the community uh, or that there were a bunch of, of folks in the community that started logging in at the same time as uh, when we were active because they wanted this not only to write stuff and get answered later, but they actually wanted like, um, let's say, real-time interaction. So this is something, this is kind of a trick that was useful for us in order not to uh, suffer from the developers having to be on the Discord the entire time. But then there, there's different things like you can do, you can 
select members of the community and pitch to them new features or characters or mechanics and stuff like that. Uh, probably um, your community is probably your most valuable creative asset. Um, and I like doing that a lot. Like if I'm working with a new idea or or a new feature that we could introduce to their game, uh, maybe I don't public I, I don't publicly mention it just because maybe it's a bad idea and I don't want people to think that this is gonna be in the game if it's really a bad idea and in the end maybe I, I don't do it. But I select kind of um, random or random specific members of the, of the community and I talk to them and I pitch to them the idea. And in my experience, they are really, really good at pointing out issues that maybe me as a developer, I haven't anticipated, yeah. but that they are going to be very important for the community. So stuff like, okay, this sounds really good. Stuff like, this sounds really good, but taking account that people is going to think that this is too greedy because of this and this and this. So maybe you could change this and stuff like that. Yeah. And I think that's super, super helpful because as a developer, you cannot anticipate and it's, yeah. uh, everything and then so you're, play not, you're not you're not asking them to do you like it or not but rather like can you punch any holes to this idea yeah and in fact something that we have done in monster legends for a while it's not something that we invented in fact uh, we copied it from magic the gathering um was that whenever we created new competitive content um we chose like in early stages of that like okay we have this idea of this new monster that could i don't know uh cast automatically cast a shield on itself and that way it protects it and it becomes a tank and so on and the other uh the enemies the, the whole thing about the enemies is about removing that shield for example um when we had these early ideas um we already talk with players and we try to select like expert players and so on and try to get their feedback and like, hey, what do you think about this idea? You think this could become competitive and um, would you would you play this? Would you play a match against us? We have created a team that uses this character. Let's see how it how it works against your team and what kind of defenses you could build through that. And, and that's super helpful for anticipating what is going to be the evolution of the meta. And in more than one case, we have detected like, okay, we have detected possible exploits that we didn't anticipate. Or um, I remember this specific case, I think it was related with a character that that cast a specific status effect. And then one of the expert players mentioned, oh, there's this other unit that was released like two years ago and had this ability, which uh, removed the status effect if something happened and we didn't know about that because it was a pretty obscure character and it was completely like completely outside of the meta. But that way we allow, it allows us to see like, okay, that unit is going to become extremely popular once we release this weapon. So once we release this, this kind of new character and so on. So I think that that is super, super helpful. If you want to have a, um, let's say a healthy, a healthy um, meta game. And another thing is, interview players like regularly this this is something that it's key like if your only method of knowing your audience is through base there's there's a lot of information about a about somebody that uh, you only get if you talk with that with that person a lot of um, non bearable communication and stuff like that um, you can only get that if you actually speak with that with that uh, person like i could feel if I fill a, fill a survey and you read it, you probably get the impression that I'm a completely different person than what I really am. 
and this is also true when it comes to your players. So I think that the interviewing players will give you a lot of information. It will allow you to in, uh, to interpret and to properly uh, translate uh, the information that is coming to you from uh, surveys and from playtest much better. Yeah, totally agree with those. Like uh, my favorite survey format has been to do with with like live games where you where you first ask the player uh, so what level are they on in the game uh, which gives you kind of like the profiling that you just talked about like are they an early game player uh, mid late or are they in the end game and then when you start asking this kind of uh, rate from one to five questions uh, where one is totally to disagree and five to totally disagree to agree and you ask question like I'm definitely going to play this game in six months and or questions like I feel I'm excited about what is happening in the game at the moment and uh, the stuff I'm collecting in the game feels meaningful and useful and you start looking at those answers that are coming from like hundreds of players and when you look at the early gameplay, what kind of score, maybe you're getting like a four and then it starts like going down as you go towards the end game, the, the average score. And then, then you can dig deeper into like the, the sentiment questions there for people like, okay, why are they scoring like worse later on? Uh, where, you know, if you're just looking at data, it doesn't really tell you that much about the sentiment of the community. And I think where that, then helps a lot is that if you when you do like regular updates to the game like you're fixing the the mid late or end game you can you can survey a play the players again to see if the sentiment is improving based on where it was before the update so if the 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 scores are improving uh i think that that has been an impressive tool where i've seen it used uh because you can't really use retention numbers as a tool to, to say that, hey, let's fix this and that thing. And uh, they do voice their sentiment also, you know, by just leaving the game. But if you if you can catch them <laughs> before they go out the door, I think that's always a big benefit. Yeah, of course. And again, this comes back to something that I mentioned before about interpreting the um, understanding players specifically from KPIs, it's really, really difficult if you don't have uh, more subjective information about them. Like one example is retention. You can see your retention improving, but in fact, the satisfaction of your customers can go, can be going down, or you can see your retention going down, but actually you can be doing a better job at uh, retaining, actually retaining your, your players. The reason is, for example, on retention, if you change your marketing mix and you start attracting players uh, that are more close to, the, I mean, th that they do have a, 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 a more clear interest about the game, uh, they're gonna, the retention um, can be going higher, but maybe the, the changes that you're doing in the game actually are making them worse for that, that specific players. Or imagine um, I'm doing also, so, Imagine I have a sports game and I'm doing all sorts of uh, changes in the game to improve the competitivity, but then I change my marketing mix and I start doing uh, advertising, getting in RPG players. And I'm promoting my game as an RPG, but then they enter and it's a, and it's a sports game and the, my focus is on improving competitivity. Um, 
probably my retention will be going down, but actually the changes that, I, that I'm doing are actually better for improving the experience of the players that actually are the core audience of the, of the game. Without having the, um, I think that without having the subjective element, interpreting data, it's really, really difficult. It is. Hey, let's move on to talk about selecting a game idea to work on. So first of all, uh, like my preference is on picking an audience first and figuring out what that audience to play next versus thinking about games that are out there or like what's hot at the moment or something like that. So uh, what I've seen gone wrong with picking an audience and then creating a player persona is that if your personas don't really exist, like, uh, like if you create a persona who loves merge games and PVP and you start building a game for that persona, like how do you, how do you know that there are people who love merge games and PVP in the first place? Well, that's a good question. Probably if I had the answer, <laughs> um, I think one of the things with with game personas that that um, uh, and again I, I haven't released a top ten uh, grossing game without an IP so I, these reasons are reasons that work in my head but maybe um, maybe somebody for Supercell can may disagree um, but what what I, my approach to personas is. I don't believe in theoretical uh, game personas. What I believe is on the other way around, on getting real people and then building personas out of them. Because uh, of course you can get an audience, um, like out of chess audience and think like, okay, yeah, these players are this kind of profile. It's a player that likes this and that. And I've seen like a lot of game personas that are like, are like ramblings, like they, it's baseless. If it, I mean, it, it looks real just because they, they do have a lot of information. But then if you start digging into that information, you see that this persona does not represent anyone really. It's not based on anyone. It's just a construct. And I think that that actually takes away the value of the, pers of the persona. The value of the persona is that it's not that it's a construct that you can use to as a confirmation bias, but rather, the, in my opinion, the value of a persona is that it's a... a a synthesis of a pro of a real um, psychological profile that exists in the in the audience, and is a tool to make challenge uh, to challenge your game or to in, um, see if your game is actually fit for somebody that exists for real. So my technique for that is okay. I want to do something for hardcore players that I like PVPs. What I would do is um, I would go to games that have this kind of audience and then talk to those players, interview them, get to know them in as much personal level as I can, and then build the personas out of the real people. Um, in fact, what my, my main technique is, is I probably, I mean, I, my main technique is based on, I, I put the names on the personas of real people. So whenever I'm thinking on that, I'm, okay, I'm doing this game for, for Victor, okay? Because Victor is somebody that we understood, that we saw it represented a big, chunk of the um, community of the of the game that we were um, working on, right? And so again, um, I think a way to the risk your, your personas is not create them out, out of thin air, but rather mm -hmm. create the personas by amalgamating similar opinions from real from people that actually exists. Yeah, that's that I, I totally agree with that, like, approach of like theoretical game personas, they don't really work. And I'm, yeah, 
I've seen that kind of stuff happening always. It's ugly. <laughs> like it's similar to your spaghetti and chocolate kind of like mixing together. Thing. Yeah, but uh, so, yeah, th- that's why honestly, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not very, I'm not sh- entirely sure if the first step I would take on a production. I've never done it. Mm. If taking the first step, creating the personas or selecting the audience. Usually, what I do is kind of the other way around. Again, I'm not necessarily sure this is the best way to be successful, but it's what makes sense in my head, which is yeah. I start the game with an assumption. And the assumption could be uh, um, fantasy sports with high speed, like, uh, I don't know, Rocket League mixed with Brawl Star is super fun. That would be my assumption. Then I prototype something super, super fast, try to hit the market with an alpha launch, get people in, see who is the people that is being attracted by this idea, and then I build the personas. And then I kind of build the product on top of of the of the of those personas that I create by seeing what kind of real people is attracted by an assumption. Pro- I mean, this has been the approach that I have mostly mostly used just because I'm I I just don't like working with abstracts. I like creating the abstracts when I have the 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 specifics. When I have a specific people, I create the the um, I create the uh, the personas. When I have um, like an assumption, when I have a, a, a game, then I, I I try to find something that works and then try to make sense out of it and not the other the other way around. Mm. Um, and uh, in, yeah, in fact, what what I would believe is is I mean what I believe is in um, Prototype, prototyping very, very early, and like take an early assumption of I have this core idea, and I think this is this experience is gonna be fun, and try to get people to play through that prototype as as soon as as soon as possible. Um, I don't believe in long pre-production periods. I, I believe in long, in long early production periods, but not in. I've seen a lot of a lot of developers kind of from the sofa thinking. Mm, this could be fun and yeah and then this would happen and kind of they're like uh, playing a chess match in their head kind of anticipating yeah. 30 or 40 moves from and that that takes a lot of time that that you can you can spend our like many many days or even months thinking on something but then at the end of the day i have i have the impression that a lot of effort there does not add a lot of predictability. So at the end of the day, you're going to be, you, maybe you have to spend several months thinking of if an idea is a good idea or not, but you are at the same level of knowledge of somebody that would have thought that idea in five minutes. Mm. Like the real test is going to be like making people play through it and not even looking at the KPIs, but actually seeing if somebody actually enjoys that, that, um, that experience. So I personally am I'm a huge fan of of trying to hit the market early, like real people getting real people to 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 play the, the prototype very early on, and then start I mean start working from there. Um, I don't like this approach where validation model where it's like okay the objective of my alpha launch or my super early soft launch is to validate my ideas. For me the objective of the soft launch is probably getting to understand what kind of people likes this idea so that when then we can start the real work. The next part of this interview will air in a few days. If you like our content, please do hit or follow on your favorite podcasting app to get notified 
when next week's episode is available. And in the meantime, we have a weekly newsletter going out every Friday with a lot of stuff that I'm sharing from my own experiences, what I'm working on right now. Uh, check that out by going to EliteGameDevelopers.com newsletter. And I'm doing this new thing for the podcast called the Ask Me Everything. So we have the link distributed in the newsletter on a weekly basis. So check that out. And I'll see you next week. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.